A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi lads, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Don't forget to like and subscribe and head over to the Patreon to contribute and help us out. Thanks a million and enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Two Norries podcast. I'm your host James Enlund, joined by my good friend Timmy Lang. Hi everyone. Rowan is on the deck, say hi Rowan. Hi Rowan. And I'm to the left of Timmy. So I keep getting stick over um, <laughs> moving my head to the right talking to James and uh, a well-known personality gave out to me over it so... We have to listen to this man and yeah. we switched. So I hope um, we took Christy Moore's advice on board. So like I always said, like, no, if I was sitting here, I'd never let that happen. Oh, fuck, I forgot all about it there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. We'll have sent with you, Ella. Dr. Johanna Ivers, an academic from Trinity College, Dublin. Mm-hmm. You're very welcome to Cork City and on the Two Norris podcast. Thanks for having me, James. Thanks for coming down. It's a beautiful evening, isn't it? It's lovely, yeah. And I was leaving Dublin today and it was actually really foggy and rainy. And anyway, I was completely dressed wrong, but there you go. No, but um, the reason you were asked to come on this podcast is because you're a great advocate for those in recovery with regards to your research. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into that um, field of research and where you're from, where you grew up? Yeah. So the two of them kind of come together. I'm from the north inner city in, in Dublin. I'm from Shamrock Dermot Street. And I suppose I grew up with uh, lots of drug use around me. You know, people I loved, people I went to school with, people in my community on, you know, ex- using drugs and becoming addicted. So I learned very early on and I, I guess I built an empathy for drug use and drug users mm. um and i suppose that goes back to the me knowing the why i i knew because i was living in, in poverty with you know adverse you know early life events trauma um lots of mental health issues like high levels of crime high levels of br- police brutality and stuff like that mm. structural violence so you know institutions that are supposed to look after us that are actually keeping us down or, or creating barriers to access so i understood all of that that's the language we have now i wasn't calling it that at the time mm. and as kind of cheesy as it sounds i kind of from a very early age wanted to change that wanted a different way for me but I also wanted a different way for the people I loved and knew and 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 knew were suffering Mm. um and so I always worked in addiction initially I started out so I trained I'm a psychologist by background and then I trained in addiction kind of clinical areas um getting 
uh, into the HSC then. And I, my main job was assessing people for, for treatment, getting them into treatment. And that's what I thought, listen, I've landed the dream job now. I'm actually helping people who want to get treatment and now they're getting places and they're coming out and they have plans. And again, we use the words care plans, mm. making goals with people. like. Yeah. And that was going well for a while. Um, and I, as I say, I was in addiction services. So I kind of felt like, right, making the changes I want. And I learned then after a while that, you know, it was all about addiction or it was all about detox and treatment and harm reduction. And there wasn't a whole lot about recovery at the time. So people were going into treatment. This They built this plan for two years and then they were coming out to very little. Um, and I never forget it was uh, December 2008 and I was working in Ballymun and five people died in the lead up to Christmas. And I thought this is wrong. Like, you know, initially I thought I was doing well and I thought we're keeping people alive. And obviously that's very important. But at this stage in the game, I kind of thought, well, you know what? Actually, now we're not that effective either. And I kind of got this curiosity and, and this drive to, again, to want to know more. And I kind of realized quickly that actually I have to understand this from a different perspective. There has to be more. Mm. And in parallel, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but in parallel, we've all known about the fellowships and the effects of the fellowships and people, you know, staying abstinence and all the rest. So that was kind of working parallel to the treatment system. But I kind of, and it was a bit of a serendipitous moment, a bit of a lucky strike um, where I was working in a clinic and a, a group of researchers headed up by a Corkonian, Joe Barry, uh, who was a big deal in Trinity. Um, he was going to understand, you know, trying to drill into this post-detox, what's, you know, what can we gain from aftercare? So I joined his team and I thought, right, I'll understand this from a population level. And mm. that's where I work now. I work in the Institute of Population Health in the School of Medicine in Trinity. And my job really is to research uh, from a population level. And my program of research looks at, it's quite broad, it's biological. I so did, I, I'm also trained in, in neuroscience and, and neuroimaging and things like that. So I wanted to understand addiction from that spectrum mm. from a biopsychosocial and I thought I knew the environment quite well so it was yeah. about combining all of that um so that's that's the who I am and yeah. where I am so, at now so when you spoke about there um back in the day it was about detoxing people mm. getting people into residential but there was very little afterwards is the concept of recovery something that's a kind of a recent uh phenomena or like has that not always been there yeah, it's a great one. I think the concept is not at all new. Um, I mean, you're living proof of that. People we know that are 50 years in, in recovery is not new. The language is new and how we're starting to look at it is new. And I think the history in the US is much better in terms of outcomes and people being a recovery community, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the UK. And I think there's a couple of things going on. One of which is something that I would have heard you talk about. And that is, you know, fellowship is great. And, you know, there's a group in Harvard Medical School, John Kelly's group, who's producing a huge amount of science on, you know, and Bill White and all those people, mm-hmm. David Best on, you know, why fellowship works and all the rest of it. 
But actually, fellowship was working, as you say, for hundreds of years. But the everybody was told to keep quiet about it. Mm. Keep yourself, keep your head down, say nothing. Anonymous. The anonymity thing, mm. you know, and don't be representing it. And I think what's flipped on its head is that difference um, where we now need to, we need people like you and we need people like Timmy and we need podcasts like this because what recovery means now is, we need to have people visible in the community so that it instills hope on the people coming up. Mm. Like the way the fellowship is, but it's no longer a secret. It's no longer bad to talk about it. You know, mm. it's almost like being out and proud and role modeling. And that's why the peer stuff is so important. But I think from a structural perspective, from the system, so from the service to the policy makers, to the decision makers, all the way up to the politicians. Mm. What they got hung up on, and it goes back to my earlier point, is that all we could see was detox and rehabilitation. And everybody, and I think that's our problem from a structures perspective, that we need to change that because yes, um, treatment is great, but treatment does two things. It either reduces harm or it takes the drugs away. So it's harm reduction or it's abstinence. Rehabilitation is about giving somebody insight into their behavior um, so that their outcomes will be better. Look at your thinking, look at your behavior, change your life. Um, but it's very individual. What we haven't done is made that transition from a systemic or from a systems point of view. So again, services, politicians, all that. We haven't embraced recovery the way the peers in recovery have like yourselves. We haven't kind of from a systems level um, supported that. And I think the crudest way or the, you know, the clearest way to look at that is we have a national drug strategy that looks at reducing harm and supporting recovery. And again, on a very basic level, probably 90% of services are reducing harm. Mm. and 10% are supporting recovery. And I'm a big, you know, I work very closely with services, have a good relationship. I like to think that my research is translational. So in other words, I take the data, I understand the story, and then I give it back to the service. And I've been quite good at making changes at a service level and at a policy level. Um, So I'm not bashing the services, but I think what services have done in the last 10 years is they've just rebranded. Mm. They're using words like recovery, but actually what they mean is treatment and rehabilitation. Recovery can be very confusing for certain people. Yeah. My understanding of recovery is recovering from trauma, is recovering from trauma from childhood, um, is recovering from trauma that was caused during addiction and caused during all different things that happened during addiction, prison, um, violence, uh, crashes and cars and bikes and all these. There's all, they're all forms of different trauma, you know, and grieving for mm. people. Like a lot of people, when they get, when, when they stop drinking and drugging, they, f- they start realizing that they have, have, they have to grieve for a loved one that they never got. The chance to because they numb themselves completely with, mm. with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. yeah, and to me, like recovery, to me is um, more than abstinence from drinking drugs. 100%. Recovery to me is you do the residential, right? If you want to, or you do your psychotherapy and all that, and hopefully you get to a place where you're abstinent. That's the holy grail. Mm. But that's 
when the work starts, the recovery piece is doing the 12 steps, if that's what you want to do, doing the meditation, the psychotherapy, addressing the behaviors, because that's like, if you want to maintain abstinence long term, you have to recover and do the recovery piece. One thing you touched on there, and I couldn't agree more, was um, the services that they talk about recovery, but they don't live recovery. Absolutely. You know, like... The, the detox and the residential is only one part of it. But in Cork, for a long time, we'd be very neglected with any aftercare service. We had no day programs in Cork up until in the last couple of weeks. And at that, they're only starting, yeah. um, which I'm working on. Yeah. But at least there's something now, do you know what I mean? We have no aftercare homes only for one or two that the Simon have. There's one in the Coonville, I have one as well. And, but all this stuff is all Dublin-centric, you know, even for Cork people leaving... Any of the services up along, the, like the treatment centre in Cork is thousands, mm-hmm. like eight grand to 15,000. Yeah. A lot of Cork people always going to Dublin, always staying on in Dublin for the aftercare, staying on in Dublin for the recovery homes. For the, So we don't have the recovery piece, at least we're way behind Dublin in terms of that. So I, I, I agree that we mm-hmm. call, call ourselves recovery. What's, but What's one of the biggest things of relapse? One of the biggest things of relapse is boredom. Mm. Right. When people come out of residential care, they go straight into their natural environment, the same environment that they were in before they went into treatment. There might be alcoholism in the family home through a sibling or a parent or whoever, doesn't matter, or, or, or a partner. And they're staying at home. They may have no job because they've lost it before they went into treatment. There's no form of aftercare as in like, where do we pit people know? It's the same with prisoners. When prisoners come out of prison and they're sober and they're mm. clean and they really want to, but they go right back into that environment where there's a lot of chaotic fucking behaviours mm. and drug addiction and alcoholism and crime. There's no chance. Because even in, in criminology, they call that process desistance. Yes. Like you stopped committing the crime. No. How do you stop it for a very long time? Forever. That's the assistance. The exact same thing as recovery. It's but the- that's the nub of it. That's the nub of it, James. So if you think about it, as I say, the first step is treatment. And I'm not, treatment is absolutely part of recovery. Because like I say, you're either stabilizing a person or you're, you know, they are wanting to be abstinent. And that's mm. brilliant. The rehabilitation piece then is them getting the insight, as you say, maybe engaging with 12 steps starting to you know embrace a, a faith mm. or do something or whatever works for the individual but the next level to that is this framework that we've spoken about before mm. which is called recovery capital so it goes to the heart of what you just said timmy which is what are the things that we need to do to ensure that recovery or the the treatment and the rehabilitation becomes sustainable And that's what recovery is Mm. when you sustain the outcomes that you've done in treatment and on yourself. Mm. And so we have this framework called recovery capital and at its fundament or at its basic is it means the assets you have in your life that keep you on the straight and narrow. So that's connection, relationships, building up relationships, getting opportunities to training, building a trade, going on to education, um, engaging in employment, engaging with your community, giving back to society, mm. having a better quality of life. And that goes to the heart of your other problem with, with it is, is this notion that, you know, we, we measure recovery in this country 
um, with two things, uh, time. Uh, so if somebody is 10 years in, in, in the yeah. fellowship, then they've a stauncher recovery than me. But actually I could be on 20 mils of methadone contributing to me community, gone back to college, reconnected with me children. And, you know, it's that level that we really should be looking at for people and not just this. You're not, you're not taking drugs anymore and you're, you know, you're, you're building on this time it has to be meaningful for people. Otherwise it's not sustainable. And I think we've all met the person that's white knuckling recovery 20 years in the behaviors haven't changed. They're angry fuckers. And, you know, they're, you know, they're a member of a, a particular, you know, organization that keeps them straight. But they're not living recovery mm-hmm. for, for themselves. It's not a judgment. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a better way of life because recovery, as you say, mm-hmm. whether it's from childhood trauma or, you know, um, addiction, then, you know, it should be about building a more meaningful mm-hmm. life, a better quality of life for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think, I also think some of the, the, the different organizations like NAA and all these different things. I think there's so many people cross addicted at the moment. I think that they should be all the one because yeah. still the program, but all the newer generation, there's, they're not just alkies. Like there's drugs, there's gambling, there's sex, there's, there's overeating. There's so many different things. It's not the one anymore. And some people might. Mightn't feel comfortable going into an AA meeting and speaking about drugs or gambling because there might be. No, this is no disrespect to anybody. Of course, this is the, the reality of it. There might be a lad that's in there of thirty years and he's an AA yeah. alcoholic, and he doesn't like the thoughts of someone that's addicted to drugs talking at an AA meeting, and that's a problem for mm-hmm. some people. And I know young men that have walked over the rooms, air rooms and, and felt worthless. And, and, and I'm sure there has been people that have walked out and went using because of their, the treat, the treatment that inside the meeting. And that's the reality of it. It's, it's not me judging anybody. You would, even, you would even get it in, uh, in other meetings as well, where, um, Let's say if you've somebody that come into the fellowship, right, and their life is destroyed, the smoking cannabis, mm-hmm. the life now isn't destroyed, the mental health is gone, the job is gone, the relationship is gone, but the feeling of being dismissed by other people that maybe was hard of drugs, you know? So that's why I think if you had something like it was just addiction anonymous, mm. it was all encompassing because all the differences really is the particular substance you're using. But at this, at the crux of it, we're all the exact same people, or they all, all have the mm-hmm. same problems, you know. We find it hard yeah. to manage life. Mm-hmm. And I, we spoke with a probation officer here before, and, uh, we're talking about, um, people that she was working with on probation, you know. Yeah. They're not committing crime anymore. Um, they're not using as much drugs as they used to be. They're not happy. They're not as bad as they used to be, but they're not as good as they could be. But they're missing that recovery capital piece. Yeah. They're missing the connection. They're missing the, the fun, the fulfillment, the education, the training, mm. and all that piece. You know, it's, it's so important. And we all know people in recovery multiple years, but never really progressed on yeah. in their lives, you know. And that's, that's, that's the sad part of us. You know, it, the recovery for me, as I said earlier, is recovering from that 
this like it's it's to be in a certain place in your life that James or Timmy can deal with the stuff of their past that they would have drank on before. Yeah. And they don't need an AA meeting. They don't need an NA meeting. They don't need a psychiatrist or a psychologist. They have already dealt with all these issues. And when something comes up from, from the past that they can sit back and say, it's okay. This is, this is okay. And, and feel it and surrender into it and go with it and try to stay out of their head. No, that's, happened to me through meditation, you know, it, I, A, saved my life. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt, people within A, they were like angels, guardian angels to me. They were, I can now, I'm, I'll be eternally grateful because of the help I got. But we're hitting a different, we're going into new times. We're going into new times where it, there's, it, addiction is across the board, everything, you know, and we need to be more open-minded you know, and and I think there must be more. There should be more of an emphasis in and on on outside help. You know, outside help therapy. I don't think the twelve steps is fantastic. Mm. It's one of the best things ever. You know, you have a look at your life, and it's but, free. It's fr- and it's free. There's no way in this. But there's 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 a lot of deeper stuff. There's a lot of deeper stuff within people trapped energies. You know, from experiences and yeah. trapped. Danny, like the f- the fourth and fifth steps, I think it's grand to talk about that stuff, but the energies of do- those experiences still trapped in here, and we need to look at other ways that to clear these things because that's their things. Like whenever somebody thinks about that experience, uh, they can feel the fear trapped down here, and that's that's the stuff that's left over. We need to look at ways where we can tell look at people that. what them steps are. The, well, for me, for me, that stuff, the fear and the, 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 the intergenerational guilt yeah. and, and shame that was passed on to me, right? It was so ingrained into me that I couldn't find a way out of it. It, it was just, it, when it came up for me, I, I felt like I was the worst person in the world. My life was over. There was no hope. I felt so bad that I just wanted to die mm-hmm. straight up. Right. But I learned a way to deal with that through meditation. So through meditation, I learned that when this stuff came up, I didn't have to fight it anymore mm-hmm. and just felt, feel it and just feel it and surrender into the feeling and, and, and whatever's going on in my head. But I had to strengthen my awareness firstly, and that was through meditation and it was through the breath. So every time I was meditating, my mind would go off into negativity and then through a thought there'd be a feeling and then there'd be a snowball effect of whatever feeling that was, whatever the emotion was, it might be fear or shame or guilt, whatever. And then I'd be spiraling down. But with the meditation, I was able to strengthen that and catch it immediately and stand back and say, okay, I'm feeling this here now. And from the thought, I feel feel it in my body, mm. and then I watch it. And within minutes or whatever, so it depends on the strength of your awareness. If the faster you catch it, the faster it's gone. You know, and, and there are things we need to start teaching people. They are the real things to teach people about all these different things that, like, your experiences are trapped in your body as a, it, 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 energies. We need to start learning how we can talk to people all day long about psychology and all these different things. But 
and they can t- they can learn why they feel certain ways and because of their experiences because of trauma they have mm. no self-esteem because they were told they were no good you know all these different things. we need to start looking at the other areas and, and, and start releasing all the energy because the thoughts are connected to the energies if there's no energy there a thought means nothing mm-hmm. it means nothing if there's no energy there's no emotion trapped ta- tapped into it so I, I I think we need to start really focusing on that a little bit more. But again, I would, and I know I'm bashing the framework, but I what that would refer to yours as being, you know, your personal capital. Mm. So the tools that Timmy has built up that will help him, which would help, as you say, many people. But um, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of flavors. Of, yeah, it? that's what worked for Timmy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what worked for James was different and we always yeah. speak about that yeah. and what we do on the podcast is we highlight all the options that people um, Christianity plant medicines meditation 12 step psychotherapy EMDR fucking everything if anything you can find that something works that works for you, for you mm. fair play yeah. and best of luck with your recovery but you have to find something because if you just come out of your treatment centre and you think that's going to be enough you're going to find it very, very difficult. And you need you need more in the bank for when times get tough. Because my, you know, when people come out of treatment, recovery, early recovery, it's fucking great. You know, you think like you want to go on social media and tell everybody three months clean tag and it's great, you know. And you think like, oh, this is it. This is easy. Life is hard for everybody, no matter who you are. When life gets tough and you're 12 months, 18 months in recovery and you haven't done all that stuff, that we just spoke about all this kind of um, therapies or whatever, you find it very difficult to stand still. So when times are good in early recovery, that's when you still have to invest in your recovery and fill the bank Mm -hmm. because you'll be cashing in on that bank when times get tough down the line. And if you listen to people's stories, they'll often tell you it's the little things that cut them out. You know, it's the having to go and get a bank account, having to get the shopping every week. Mm. They were used to managing the chaos, but it was the everyday life events that kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back. So without doing that work that you were talking about, Mm. whatever mode or method you want to use or therapy, uh, that's fine. But without doing that work, it's not going to be sustainable. I'm working with this guy at the moment and... um He's doing exactly that now. He's dealing with the city council. He's dealing with the medical cards, the social welfare. And I'm saying to him, like, you're learning the coping skills now. That's going to set you up for the rest of your life. Mm. These little jobs, you know, making your appointments, looking after, taking care of your business. This is recovery. This is life. This is life. This is it. The people that are neglecting this and thinking, oh, I'll I'll do this and and I'll, I'll do that appointment or I'll leave that go. They're the ones that's going to fall flat in their first 12 months down the line, but you won't because he's taking care of his business. So it's so important. But um, you mentioned there something about neuroscience. Um, mm. Do you think um, different drugs affect the brain differently and can there be permanent damage done that can't be undone? Well, that's a bit loaded, but I'll try okay. to, yeah. So mm. yes, there are di- all drugs or most drugs act on different sites in the brain that we call receptors or, mm. you know, so they're like the key and locks. The opiates with the pain. Yeah. So they, they target different parts of your brain. Um, so part of my PhD was looking at whether or not, um, long-term opiate use, uh, causes, um, 
brain impairment. So I looked at it in two ways. When we take an image, a neuro image, we want to know functionally how the brain is doing and structurally how the brain is doing. And so when I, I looked at whether or not the longer a person was on, um, opiates in, in this case, mostly heroin or, or methadone, uh, cause we don't really give proof and orphan. So, um, I wanted to look at the longer term effects of that and whether or not that we could see a correlation. And not surprisingly, the longer you were on opiates, the worst state your gray matter was in. Mm. Now, in terms of my studies, I don't yet know whether, um, that's, you know, repairable. Mm. Um, but I would say that the brain is a remarkable organ and that it has the capacity to, you know, recover itself from way worse things than drugs. Mm. And one thing that I'm really interested in is building this kind of, um, what I'm referring to as a a human model of recovery. Because what we have is we're in a very exciting time in a way because, you know, we have this huge population of people in recovery, you know, peers in recovery, huge amount of people across, you know, Ireland and, and globally. And we, we know very little about them, but these are people who have lived with a chronic illness, with a chronic disorder, you know, like people that live with diabetes and they do yeah. different damage to, but actually it's probably one of the only chronic diseases or disorders, I should say, excuse me, um, that we have this recovering population. Generally, when we talk about chronic illness, it's a progressive thing and it's mm. about management, but eventually it gets the person and, you know, they become worse. But actually addiction is one of these really unusual things that we have a great opportunity to study the brain and the body. So another thing that's quite interested in, interesting is something called the allostatic load. Now that sounds, it's two words. And all it means is the wear and tear of your body. Mm. So we all have stress and we all have resilience and we, we, we take on stress. And as you say, Timmy, we, we manifest it in the body and we, uh, process it differently. And that's why one person's, you know, more resilient than another. So we have these mechanisms to start to look at the recovery of the body and the physiology and the recovery of the brain. And so that's really what I'm trying to push in my research group, as well as the health service stuff and, you know, the social piece and the, and the environmental piece. I think that we're in a very exciting time for recovery where we could start to learn a lot about that. And, you might say, well, why is that interesting? Well, it's very interesting because people want hope. Mm. And when you can tell somebody that you've had years of damage on a particular organ and here's the recovery rate or here's the time to recovery, mm. um, that instills hope and it kind of drives people along. Mm. And stress is one of the biggest indicators, as you know, to relapse. Yeah. So if we can manage people's stress rates and know at what point they've kind of passed that, because we're still tinkering around with what's the sweet spot is it when you're two years in recovery are you over the line Mm. when you're five years are you over the line when do you become recovered it's impossible it's it's impossible but i think from a physiological point of view it's definitely achievable Mm. and that is what would give people a lot of hope and that's what we could shape things around so like it does at a certain point in recovery the brain might be fully recovered yeah. So mm. physiologically. Might be, yeah. Yeah. I often question the damage that uh, cocaine would have done to my brain, you know, because without being disgusting or anything like that, there was 
at times when I went on cocaine binges for six or seven days with no sleep. Yeah. That I often thought that stuff that would come out of my nose would be part brain matter or whatever. Right. Because it was so bad. There was a one period I must have used cocaine for at least nine to ten months, uh, four, five, six days a week, you know, and sleep for a day or two and go back at it again when I wake up. And I look at, do you know, when it, when things happen in my life at the moment, um, it's, it's just small kind of struggles, personal struggles, mm. kind of academically or, 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 or just intellectually. I, I question the damage that drugs cause to my head, right? Mm. But I actually don't know it. I don't know that. I don't know the damage because I would have never been in, I would have never been somebody that was educated in the previous level. Does that make sense? Mm. Because I didn't learn, I didn't educate myself until I got into, um, former recovery. So it is, I'm sure everybody at some stage does question what is the damage I'm after doing to myself? You know, I suppose you have to have some form of awareness at a previous level. You have to know your baseline. Don't yes, you? you have to know how smart you were right. to be able to say, oh God, I'm, after, I'm actually after doing a bit of damage here to my head because right. before I was able to do this and now I can't. I remember when I started out the education piece in recovery, I was at a FETAC level five in the further education college there, college comic. College of Commerce, and um, I was so anxious about starting because, like that, I didn't know, like, am I after no, you hear, like, uh, um, scaremongering stuff like cannabis burns brain cells in your brain, and you know, what did and I was thinking, what did all the ecstasy and the benzodiazepines, the right hip and all the Xanax, the heroin, the methadone, am I going to be able to remember the stuff? Mm. Am I going to be able to study? Am I going to be able to read? Am I going to be able to retain the information? But I found I was fine, absolutely fine, you know, and I'd say a lot of that is scaremongering. Well, yes. And what you will have found, and I think you're good at advocating and pushing this message out, is that you actually got better. Like the way when you went to the gym the first time, you didn't, Mm. you know, pop a muscle. But when you kept on going, Mm. the same thing happened to you with your brain for education. You went, you had a bit of foggy brain, you had a lot of self-doubt and self-doubt can cause lots of blockages and all the rest. But as you went on and you embraced that, you actually built your brain stronger. If And and you talk about a baseline, okay, you mightn't have a perfect baseline, but if you think back to yourself in school, which wasn't a great experience, mm. and yet there's lots of yeah. what we call interfering variables or interfering factors, you, you do kind of have a baseline. You got cleverer as you went on. Mm. I imagine you're more clever today than you were five years ago. Mm. So actually, is that not a remarkable recovery to the brain. Mm. And the worst thing I think that can happen is, I think self-doubt is something that we'll all have. You know, if I do this, did I burn myself out? You know, I'm quite a stressy person, so I'm always worried about that level of stress. And what is it doing to me physiologically? But I think the worst thing that can happen is the scaremongering Mm. and people writing themselves off. Sure, I've 20 years on drugs We've all seen the picture of the two fried eggs. You know, Mm. I'm gone. Mm. I'm fucked. Like, why would Mm. I bother? So that's the bit where it becomes really important to kind of educate people about the ability to recover. But sure, even people that have had brain injuries. Exactly. They still do physio on their brain to to get back. People that have strokes, they do physio. It's like what you do for a muscle. 
you still have to build it back up as a muscle. And I completely take what you say there. Like, if you have fried your brain for 20 years of drug use, that's even more. Well, you more, perceive it is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, but that's even more of an excuse to go into education because you need to repair it back up. And you start off at your level two, threes and fours and work your way up like what we did. But James, you know that giving yourself an excuse to use is the biggest way to keep yourself in addiction as well. Yeah. So if we give people, you know, this scaremongering message and they think I'm fucked, like, why would I bother? They just keep on using on that. Yeah. And that's true. the waste, you know? Do you know, as an academic that writes about drug policy and, and all things related to addiction and recovery, hmm. do you find it very disheartening when social policy is driven by ideology rather than evidence-based? Yeah, and I think that's true probably of every area of academia. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it is very disheartening. And where it becomes really disheartening is when we look to the US and we look to the UK and we see the, you know, the communities of recovery there. We see the voices and faces, you know, we see the big Ivy Leagues coming out with all their evidence and still, and, and I'm not bashing harm reduction. I absolutely believe that it's a spectrum mm. and I believe that it begins with you know getting the help of you know harm reduction services and a massive advocate for that as well but it's the lack of investment and that education piece that I talked about that has to happen service um, decision maker policy maker uh, politician they need to move away from that old metric that measuring stick of treatment or detox being recovery mm. and rehabilitation being recovery like the, the the drug policy that we're all working from at the moment supporting uh or reducing harm supporting recovery the current national drug strategy i think if you flick through that recovery the word is mentioned about it's either i'm, I'm you know it's either nine or eleven times but it's very superficial and mm. there's very few actions aligned with that Whereas if you look at the actions in the, it's all about, and I've been involved with the festival drug use. I'm, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm about to launch, uh, studies next week that will look at, at, um, keeping people safe at festivals, drug checking services. So again, I'm not saying one is more important than the other, but when it comes to policy, you're dead right. We've got buckets of global evidence that we're not implementing. Mm. And we're not even taken on board. Yeah, and even with that, um, the current policy document that talks about, you know, a health-led response, like, but in practice, it's actually a criminal justice-led response, unless it's down to the, you know, it's down to the individual judge what they want to do. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that um, festival testing? Yeah, so we did, um, again, with the National Office, I did um, some studies one was looking at the review of the evidence. So we do what's known as, you know, when we take a load of studies and we kind of look at the, the good, the bad and the different in them and we try to understand what it is that the evidence is showing. So that's what's known as a systematic review. Mm -hmm. So we did one of them and what we found was that, um, you know, drug checking services are wanted by festival users. They are something that they would contribute to. Um, and they are something that keeps people alive. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a growing public health, um, problem is, is people dying at festivals. We've had two, one of which was in Cork. Right. Um, 
and it's very unfortunate. Um, so mm. we need to do all we can to keep people alive at any level. Um, but people want to use drugs recreationally. And we know that the majority of people that use drugs have no problem using mm. drugs. You know, they, they use them, they, they use them at the weekend and they don't cause them any problems and they go mm. to work and that's fine. So that is a population that we have to care about as well. Yeah. Um, and so the second thing we did was a national so, uh, survey. So we looked at people who were in Ireland who went to festivals here and went to festivals abroad. And what we found was that drug use was, you know, always part of their experience, I think was in the 90%. Yeah. Um, 97% of people said that if there was a drug checking service on site, that they would use it. So in mm. other words, they would go up, get hand in their drug, get it tested. Um, what would that do? What's that, the legalities around it then? Herein lies the issue. Yeah. So you've got different countries doing it. We've got the evidence that says it works. We've got the evidence that says people want it. Um, but what we haven't got is the law that allows us to carry it out and implement mm. it. Um, interestingly, and I, it's going to be released next week. And I, what I would say, because obviously it lies with the HSC, I would be hopeful that we will, it's, we, I mean, festivals are on hold because of the pandemic, but I would be hopeful that in Ireland we, we will at least get a pilot drug checking service. Mm. Like mm. in, like the practicalities of that is if you go to a festival like Greenfields or somewhere like that and you had a load of ecstasy or you would enough ecstasy for personal use, not a load of them, but actually you get into trouble, but you could go up and they would test the drug and give back to you. Yeah. Well, what, yeah. So there's two types, front of house and back of house. So I'll try and keep it uh, short because, uh, so one is getting your drug tested while you're at the festival. And that's what people are most in favor of. Sorry. Um, and the second one is when you, when you go up to a community service, get your drugs tested ahead of time. So it needs a bit of planning. You've got to buy the drugs. You've got to get them tested. And the the big favor for that, why some countries choose that, and we're looking at the Netherlands and, you know, that side of the world that favors this uh, type, it allows people to have an intervention. So a bit mm -hmm. like safe inject or a supervised injecting facilities, it's an opportunity to intervene. And um, then we have amnesty bins. And what the amnesty bin is, is when you donate a piece of, let's say, an ecstasy tablet, and that gets tested and it gets broadcasted then throughout the festival, whether or not what you're oh, taking, what you think you're taking is actually what you're taking. Because that's what's killing people. Mm. They think they're taking ecstasy, but then they're taking something that's, you know, highly toxic and, and, and killing them. Yeah, there was a situation here a few years ago. Remember we had Keen O'Mani on the podcast. Mm. His friends bought what they thought was cocaine, but it was actually a, a synthetic opioid and they snorted it. Fentanyl, and, yeah. Yeah, it was fentanyl. And he died and he was only 15 years of age. You know, and that was most one of the most tragic things you can think of, you know, because, you know, it's innocent children sometimes are taking the drugs, but they don't know what they're taking. Um, I don't know, like, I've seen it in piloted, what's the, what's the organisation in the UK that are heavily involved in the festivals? But anyway, I was reading the piece, they, they have, there was this festival, I said, there was three deaths in 2018. They piloted it in 2019. Uh, no deaths. Fiona Meacham, yeah, yeah. that piece, yeah. yeah. But then they didn't continue it after a successful pilot. I can't understand. 
that. Like, well, it might be the legality. So in other words, um, you know, and it's the same thing that keeps the decriminalization piece, which goes to the heart of what you said, that mm. is that the tail is wagging the dog, like justice is, is, is holding all the cards mm. and, uh, and, and it's not a health led piece. Um, it is part of our national drug strategy to look at what we call nighttime economy. So festivals, nightclubs, um, and keeping people that use drugs in that space safe. Yeah. Do you think that we'll ever get to a stage in Ireland where we have full decriminalization of drugs? And do you think we'll ever get to a stage where we have good, solid, adequate recovery homes for people, aftercare services for people? Or is that, especially the decriminalization, do you think we'll get there? God, I hope so, James. I really do. I, I hope we do, is mm. my answer. Mm. Um, I don't think it's it's today or tomorrow but I don't think it's 20 years away you know mm. I'm hopeful Are you involved in any like uh, working group or that you can give us inside track on or um, do you get invited to any like political stuff like that or are you consulted for policy by politicians or Yeah I mean I've got a I've got a a, a lot of um, invites to that stuff and I think Sharon's really good at you know, articulating the, the, the notion when you're, you know, a little bit earlier in your career and you jump at the thoughts of the minister writing to you and asking you mm. to go on a working group and, you know, you feel like you've got a seat at the table. Um, but, you know, I've said to my friend before, sometimes you're sitting there, but you have no plate in front of you. There's just no say. It's tokenistic. Mm. So I have been involved in a lot of working groups, the, the, um, drug testing, um, the you know one thing that we're doing at the moment that I'm trying to do in Trinity is is build and UCC led on it actually, which is build collegiate recovery programs. So you'll appreciate this. You go to college and it's great, and you're getting a great experience, and you know you're building your capital and all the rest. But while you're in college, there isn't this community you can draw on. There isn't this, you know, other people like you. It's nearly like the NA thing or put your head down, say nothing mm. and just get on with it. And America are leading out again on this and the John Kelly group and all the rest on recovery pieces whereby or re- collegiate recovery programs. So programs that build, you know, campus spaces that create free, you know, non-alcohol, non-drug spaces. Uh, houses within campus that are de- designated for people in recovery, yeah. fellowships that are given to people or sponsorships just to come in because you're recovery. So that's one thing I'd love to see Trinity do, come out and be proud and say, if you're in recovery, come to us because you know what, we've buckets of support and we want to support you. Yeah. And I was very fortunate in the last few weeks to be made Associate Dean of um, Civic Engagement and Social in- Innovation. And I'm not giving my a plug for that the reason i'm saying it is it's now a platform Mm. to make trinity do that you know so you know ucc as i said led on that piece that that collecting the data for the d the the um you kill me for this now um not my use but drug use uh uh survey do you know what would be cool like like would, like, do you know if there was like um, a recovery society like when I was in yeah. UCC there was societies for everything but I didn't really think that any of them was for me you know that's what I mean but if there was a reco- when you were in CIT if yeah. there was recovery society you would have went like wouldn't you and, yeah when I was in the CIT I did look out for some particularly the mature students because the, the, the younger people 
are only finding themselves at that stage unless there's somebody really that, and you can see it's evident that they're destroyed from alcohol or drugs. Mm. But when I was out there, there was nothing really, you know, I actually was going to ask him, would we be able to start an AA meeting or, or yeah. an NA meeting during, during the, the school? Mm. There's 15,000 people out there. Mm. You know, I, I would have expected like, to have something out there, particularly when it's such, there's so much drinking and drugging going on within the, in college, in, in, in college yeah. and there's nothing there. I'd say between UCC and CIT, there must be 50,000 people. Yeah. Recovery Society would be, I'd say, amazing. And do you know the way they have sanctuary scholarships for people in direct provision? Something like scholarship for people in yeah. recovery, you know? Give them the leg up, you know, it'd be great, like, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, and I think there'd be a lot of people use the service like that, you know, it's, it might be something for for colleges to look I know at. loads of people. And that's, that's what we are trying mm, to do. Yeah. And if you look, if you were interested or any of your listenership are interested, the kind of world leaders are Texas, Texas Tech, they're the big deal. But like that, they, they bring people in on scholarship and celebrate the fact that they are in recovery and what they can bring to the college community. Mm, Instead yeah. of that, put your head down, say nothing, be shameful. You know, if you're having a hard day, go outside. And then you're told you're supposed to be part of the college community. Well, yeah. you're either going to shut up and put up or you're going to have resources on campus. Mm. So, you know, that's what it's about, putting yeah, the, yeah. the sports it's in. It's not something that should be hidden anymore or you should be shamed of. You know, like people, a massive thing that we try to to show people is not addiction is not a choice for anybody. Nobody no. wants to become a drug addict and sleep and uh, being homeless um, and have a massive amount of charges and have a, uh, years and years of prison. No one wants that. That's not a living at all. You know, but if these substances and alcohol are the only thing that's giving you some form of release, you know, you're going to use them. It's like when we had Gabber Matty on the show, I was like... I know. Well, Big win. <laughs> yeah. When he when he, he spoke about, like, the feelings people get from drugs and alcohol, you get a sense of belonging, a sense of love, a sense of relationship. You know, that's what drugs gave me, particularly ecstasy at the beginning. And I loved it. You know, people use drugs for you know, one of two reasons. Yeah. They either want to stop feeling something or they want to start feeling something. Mm. So you either want to feel less stressed or, you know, more relaxed or whatever the case is. And ironically, people stop using drugs for the same reasons. Mm. You know? And when I say I loved loved the ecstasy, I loved what it made me feel. Mm. You no, know, they're very, very, drugs are dangerous. Rubbish out of a doubt. You know, but they work I, as well, and they, that's why we them. And I, I, I always say it about what drugs done for me in my own life. They saved my life, but they eventually nearly killed me straight out, you know, because I was completely paranoid and different things were going on for me in my life, and they started wanting to take my own life and, and all this stuff. But they do soothe people. They do keep people out of their, their thinking minds for a period of life. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they didn't have the substances or anything else to keep, you know, to block out all the shit that's going on in their heads, it could be pushing them over the edge, you know. And and yeah, we we um he mentioned Gabba Mata there. In October we have Doctor Bessel van der Kolk coming on the podcast, mm-hmm. and then in uh in 
April next year. I know it's a bit away, but we have a fella called Stephen Porges talking about polyvagal theory. That's his kind of... Um, oh, yeah. He's theory. But have you any uh, interesting research coming up or books or projects that you're working on at the moment or any interesting um, appointments or trips or advice or anything? Well, I a few things. I I'm I'm very interested in the health diversion program. You know, the trying to give people a, a chance that are going through the courts, um, and and taking that health led response. So that's, that's something we're running in Cork. in Cork. Yeah, and Cork will be the first kind of site to produce that day, produce any data or tell people's stories from that perspective. Another thing I'm very interested in coming out of Cork is collaboration with myself and David Best, we're building a recovery coaching model. Mm. Um, so again, this peer-led pro- approach, people who are longer in recovery, helping people who are, you know, up and coming. Mm. And uh, we know that coaching is hugely successful. So Cork will lead out on that one as well. So That's true, the Recovery about, Academy with Mark Wright. No, it's it's actually, it, it, you see, I think people blur the lines with that. It's, okay. it's not, the Recovery Academy in Dublin Wren a coaching study but it's actually a a trinity piece a david best piece and a a cork and kerry and have Um, you recruited all your participants for that no and if you wouldn't mind me giving a shameful plug i would love for people who are listening who are interested so again would you mind if i spend a couple of seconds so what we're looking for are people who are you know two years plus in recovery that want to give a little bit back we're going to provide them with a training program and a mentor in the community. So what they'll do is they'll become a coach or a buddy to somebody that's in recovery, you know, only coming out of treatment. And it can be anything from taking them to a meeting to, you know, um, babysitting or whatever, uh, showing up at appointments with doctors, just really walking the walk with that person because they've done it before them. Um, but the protective layer is then, or, or the next call out that I'm doing is that we're also looking for people who are, you know, anywhere between five and 10 years in recovery in the community that are willing to become mentors to the coaches so that we have all the layers of, of kind of protection in there and people I, are supported I, and training will be given. Yeah. Um, yeah. I heard, and I might be wrong and I hope sure I am. you're not. <laughs> um, I heard that the mentors have to be, Ten, five to ten years in recovery but have to be working in addiction services too is that true well ideally that's the way the protocol protocol is written um mm. we're looking for um you know maybe 12 um of those individuals might be um, difficult like it's a very kind of niche you know like to get the people in five ten years recovery and working in addiction services you know i can think of a lot of people that would be suitable wouldn't be in addiction services so then they're not suitable so but I hope people and sign maybe up. that is mm. something that you know we can renegotiate but mm. I mean I suppose just doing the feelers uh there yeah. was a lot of people in, interested in the mentoring piece that I knew myself yeah. that you know were willing to kind of come on board and I suppose it's about you know, I'm not fixed on them being in, like yeah. it could be, let's say Timmy doesn't meet that criteria, but yeah. actually he's doing mm-hmm. the two nori. So yeah. he is advocating, he is contributing to the field. And I, I guess the, the being in 
the addiction services is linked back to knowing the pressure that the person is facing um, as a coach, what yeah. kind of things are coming up. So that's not the deal breaker, but we okay. really are trying to get coaches to to really help us build that model. Yeah. And they must be able to be doing it as well for the right reasons, you know. Yeah. Must be for the right reasons generally to really help people and to get into a good place in their lives. Yeah, it's all voluntary anyway. It is voluntary, um, absolutely. But you get good training. You get very good training. Um, it's a huge evidence base behind it. Um, and you get the support of the mentor, hopefully. Um, and yeah, it's about, isn't it? It's about building that sustainable model. So yeah. giving back to the community. The health diversion scheme is with George Orwell and Kelleher and Katie Buckley. Am I allowed to yes. mention them? Absolutely. They're the okay. heroes in it. I only get mm-hmm. the, the data. They're the ones doing all the work. Yeah. So I'd love to get them on eventually. Maybe when we have some data from that, maybe like how it's going, but you might put in a word to Judge Olin Keller. We might have to get a judge on the podcast. Okay. We've never had a judge on the podcast. I think he'd be the perfect character. And uh, you might turn a word for us. No, I would him. throw in a word if I meet him. But, I've never um, met him yet. No, that's okay. the problem. I mean, I think the the purse, uh, the monies goes oh, to um, goes to to the task force. But absolutely, yeah. um, I suppose nice one though. thing that I yeah. sorry to no, give one plug that will come up in twenty twenty two is the EMCDDA conference, um, and I think if you're interested in addiction and recovery. That's one of the great conferences because it's got everything from the bio- biological, neurological, all the way up to the social. And that happens in October 2022. Um, we might do it in person. Yeah. And, and where a, is it? It's always in Lisbon because that's where they're based. And I know David Best had postponed a, a, an amazing um, lineup of people, Keith Humphreys, John um Kelly himself and Ed Day so for the big giants in recovery mm. to happen in Derby so mm. he works in University Excellent. of Derby so that'll be coming up so from a community perspective that's the other thing I'd give a plug to mm. yeah brilliant we should go to that to me Lisbon yeah. Yeah. there was a good bit of planning we might get a grant off the council or HSC or something you know, because it would it would complement the podcast, you know? and they do they do sponsored places. So you just need to keep an eye on their website, and um, they yeah they do sponsored places, and you can contribute to things. So doing a podcast, I imagine, would be yeah. a, a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, book our flights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds yeah. good. Yeah, but look, thanks for being a little great guest. I know Thank you're you. going for dinner. I know with Sharon Lambert, so yeah, enjoy that and enjoy the lovely weather in Cork. And uh, we'll touch base again down the line for sure. Thank you so much for the invite. You're and you've made it so easy. Thanks. Thanks for Thank you. Hi everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe, and don't forget to head over to the Patreon if you'd like to help us. Thanks again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.